0: thanks for joining us for our next podcast here we're here with rodney workman uh i'll have rodney if you would introduce yourself give your background where you're teaching where you've taught all that cool stuff we'll start off with that one
1: well uh, i started teaching about 15 years ago uh, my first job was at Eastport middle school which is where i'm sprung so that was a good job to have um and i taught there three years before i moved to davidson county and i taught at central davidson uh, I taught middle school there, um, and we did high school together as well. Um, and then eventually I went to the high school sort of full-time, and then after that I came to Asheville, and that's where I'm at now.
0: All right. So you've had a good teaching career. How many years? Uh, Fifteen. Fifteen. Okay, 15 years in. So you started off in middle school. So let's talk about recruiting for Beginning Band. What did you do to recruit for Beginning Band? What worked best for your programs? Was it different? in the two middle schools you've worked in, how that whole recruiting system worked for you in your schools?
1: I, um, both really all the schools I've taught in, I've been lucky that they're sort of direct feeders from three or four or five elementary schools, you know, depending on where it was, but we knew where the kids were coming from. So it was pretty easy to go out and visit and, you know, do concerts and things. And my first job, I was hired really early like in March and uh, when I was student teaching and So the music dealer, Scott Love, you know, called me first time I think we ever really spoke and he said, well, I've already recruited your sixth grade band. There's 120 kids. You don't need to do anything. I was like, all right, great. So, you know, the next year I said, well, it obviously went well when you did it. So let's just go out together and, you know, I'll kind of figure out what you did and learn from you. And basically Scott played all the instruments and, you know, did a dog and pony show for every fifth grade class. And. So I just sort of did the same thing and sort of expanded on that. Ted Driver was later my music dealer and we, we did it together a lot. And, you know, and basically we just showed the instruments and tried to, you know, excite the kids and to get them to, to want to play. Um, Which I think is what probably most people do if you're lucky enough to get to go out. Um, Sure. Later on, I did expand a lot. Um, I started noticing that, you know, like we would go and visit and, 90% 90% of the kids would say, oh, yeah, I want, I want to play an instrument. You know, they would be just as excited as could be. But then 30% of the forums would come in. And so I couldn't quite figure out, well, what's, you know, what's going on that's preventing kids from starting? And so I started doing a lot more asking of questions, you know, and trying to figure out what happens to the other 60%, you know, and I figured out a lot of it sometimes it's money. And a lot of times, though, it's athletics and fear that, well, I'm not going to be any good at it, or they go home and say, hey, I, w- I want to play the trumpet, and dad says, well, you can't do that. You're going you're gonna to play baseball, and you don't ever stick with anything, so we're not going to waste money on you doing that. I mean, usually the parents talk the kids out of it for whatever reason, so I really started modifying what I did to basically train the kids how to go home and train their parents to get them to sign up. Gotcha. And almost, you know, half of the recruiting that I do now is a lot of it is when your mom says you know this is going to cost a lot of money this is what you need to tell them and if you know if your dad says you know you're going to play football or whatever well you need to explain that this is a class during the day it doesn't conflict and and I noticed especially at, um, at Eastport Middle School the last year we recruited 175 beginners out of you know probably 280 kids so that really seemed to help um, that. And then at Central Davidson, it was sort of the same way. Removing the athletic conflict within the community, people started to realize, oh, okay, you know, my kid can do this. And and so numbers were always, you know, at least right about half there. Um, sometimes even a little more depending on the year. So I feel like that it's not hard to convince kids, you know, yeah, you want to play this shiny thing. And it's a lot more exciting than going to math class. So I mean, it's not hard to get them to want to do it. It's just hard to oh, get yeah sometimes the parents to understand that they can do it and to get the kid to understand that it's not going to be a conflict, with anything else they're doing that sort of thing. Um, so uh, the other thing we did at central Davidson was the high school concerts that made a huge difference. You know, the, I think the kids that were on the fence, especially if they were like, well, maybe I want to be in chorus or maybe I want to do this or that when they would see that high school band come out and play fun music, they were all about it. You know, we, we really spent a lot of time preparing those concerts, not necessarily musically, but we prepared how it was going to look and exactly how it was going to go down. And it was really a, a very well thought out recruiting concert um, that was designed to get you know kids interested, especially the ones on the fence. Um, so you know, some places aren't lucky enough to get to. You might have 20 elementary schools feeding you that. Are all random, you know, like in Riley or Winston Salem, and that's that's a lot harder. But um, and of course, now with no one really being able to go out this spring, people have had to come up with different things to do. But in the ideal situation, face to face visits is definitely the way to do it.
0: Absolutely, I cannot agree more with that. It's uh, with this COVID shutdown. It's been huge uh, in terms of the impact on the numbers yeah. at my school. And, uh, but you're at Central and East Burke. Those schools are like really, really uh, well off, right? Lots of financial resources, all that stuff. Uh, How, how are the, how was the makeup of those schools?
1: Uh, Eastbrook was definitely about half, you know, middle-class just sort of normal families, you know, and then the other half was probably fairly high poverty. Um, and you know, it's, it's a title one school for sure. And, uh, central Davidson, I think when I first started working there, it probably was a little less. It it felt like when I came there that the kids were a little better off, but as the economy crashed, that was right when I took that job. Um, the furniture industry in that community, you know, is gone now, and I, it it definitely got poorer and poorer every year I taught there, really. And um, that school is about sixty five percent free introduced lunch, I think, and you know, and so you got, you want those kids. I mean, in order to have a band, you got to have them. Um, You've also got to have people that can pay to run the program too. So, I mean, you know, it's a mix, but you know, when you're teaching in a high poverty school, I mean, you've got to figure out how to get those kids in the band as well and make sure they can afford it. At Central, we were so lucky to have so many school-owned instruments, Uh, not necessarily flutes and clarinets, but like euphoniums and horns and tubas. And so, you know, I would regularly start 10, 12 euphoniums and almost all of them would be on it because they couldn't afford an instrument. And a lot of those kids would end up going to tuba or horn or something. And, you know, but we had the instruments to sort of get some of those kids in there and the elementary teachers helped find those kids that had a lot of potential but maybe couldn't afford. Um, and Asheville sort of the same way. Asheville is a much richer population on the 60, 70% end, but the 30% the other 30% is probably even way poorer than anything I've taught before. So it is very hard here to get those kids in the band and we've made bigger efforts this year to try to make that to happen. And I think we're, I think we're going to, we're going to see some progress there, but it's going to take a while.
0: So it seems like you've been really successful in, in title one schools. You're proven that uh, you can have a big band in a title one school.
1: Yeah, definitely. And sometimes I, I think, I mean, the one thing we fight here already that I don't love is that, well, you know, so-and-so is a a championship swimmer, and he's also a chess player, and he's also taking, you know, Latin 7 and, you know, in fifth grade, and he's, I mean, every kid, you know, the kids that you would think automatically want to be in band, they're already, like, playing the cello and doing this, that, and the other, and, you know, they're, they're really much busier because they have the means to do those things, and at a place like Central Davidson or, or East Burke, I mean, it it was not hard to hook kids in because they didn't have a whole lot else going on. And for those kids, a lot of times band was sort of the thing they did, you know? And so it, in some ways, I mean, I wouldn't say it's easier in a title one school, but there are some benefits. I mean, um, when they're yours, they're yours and they're very appreciative and our kids are appreciative too. But I, I sometimes feel like, you know, I'm, one of the many things they do well and we're just trying to hold on to them and hope we keep them. Um, as opposed to, you know, like at central where you could graduate 50 seniors pretty easily because they would stick with it.
0: Gotcha. It's, it's crazy to see the difference in the situations in the programs and how it's they have are you know. so different. Uh, along those beginner band lines, how did you go about choosing instruments for those kids that signed up to do band?
1: I've done it two ways. I mean, um, the first years that I taught, they just signed up and whatever their first choice was was pretty much what, what they got. And if we filled up in flute or, you know, trumpet or whatever, you know, then we'd start trying to herd kids onto their second choice, but it was basically just whatever you want to play, come show up and we'll teach you. And that worked fine, you know, but I, I will say, I mean, we would often, you know, have a kid who just could not get flute, just was not going to make a sound. And, you know, we'd have some kid that clearly needed to be playing the tuba, trying to play the trumpet. And it wasn't a lot of them, but it was probably a good 20% that I think had we mouthpiece tested, we might could have got them started a little better earlier. And so I think maybe my fifth year teaching, we started doing mouthpiece testing and, you know, some people do it where, every kid tries every single thing. I just thought with a hundred people coming to these meetings, it just was, it just was going to take too long. So I basically tried to figure out, okay, if you really want to play the flute, is that going to work for you? Okay. If not, we're going to put you on clarinet and anybody that wanted to play the clarinet, that was yours. I mean, I always like to start 40, 50, 60 clarinets if possible. And so basically if you have a pulse, you can play the clarinet. We're not going to, We're not going to turn you away there. Um, And then the brass classes, I mean, 90% of them, if you want to play the trumpet, that's probably what you're going to end up on. But we have them try it first. And then, you know, sometimes a kid will play the trombone mouthpiece and realize I sound really great at this and it's way easier to get a sound and sometimes the opposite. So, you know, it's a little, it's a combination of what they want and trying it, you know, trying out to some degree. But we let some kids start. Maybe they didn't get to come to the meeting and they're like, you know, he really wants to play trumpet and we already have one at home and I'm like, all right, he's going to play trumpet, you know? So it's kind of a combination, but we try to head off any problems before we start. And we try to limit the number of flutes and pick flutes that are going to play it well, or, you know, be able to play it.
0: It's pretty much a balance of instrumentation, what you want, what the kids want, that kind of stuff. Okay. Well, let's talk about uh, your classes. When you you've had several different, I guess, schedules when you were teaching middle school band, how did you have your classes set up? And what do you think worked best for you um, in the whichever situation you had?
1: Well, anybody that's taught middle school knows that middle school scheduling is a disaster. And every middle school on earth struggles from, you know, one year you have an every day, the next year you have every other day, one year you have, I've literally had 8AB day, day 45 minutes, every day 45, every other day 90, every other day 70. Um, a mix of 8AB day, day with one day being always the same. I mean, just it's just like crazy scheduling all the time so no matter what it was i always tried to make sure we had homogeneous classes which we i've always been lucky to have some people that's just not a possibility um but you know at eastport middle it was a day b day 45 minutes in sixth grade which meant we had four sections so i had flute clarinet and then high brass low brass there i started pretty much everything within the first nine weeks so I might start an oboe in flute class pretty quickly and a bassoon or, you know, and maybe bass clarinets by the spring. But everybody was in their instrument family class in sixth grade. And, um, and they're actually in seventh grade, too. And I think that's just that's the Texas model. I mean, I teach middle school band. and I think most people who are getting really good results teach middle school band like it's a master class every day like it's a private lesson with just 40 kids in the room rather than just throwing them in a method book and going and so the only way to really do that is if you have all the clarinets in a room or all the clarinets and saxes and all the brass and so i i just feel like homogenous in whatever way you can make it work is absolutely the way to do it Uh, at central i had it that way in the beginning but then they they were having numbers problems in the other classes basically because the band kids were still able to take Art and stuff like they were just unable to teach all the kids, so they asked me if I would consider having band like twice as much. Basically, have it ninety minutes every other day rather than forty-five. And I said that I would. You know, of course, I wanted to add the time, but I didn't want to lose the the ability to split them up. And so they agreed to work out the scheduling to where James Darty and I could teach um, the beginners together. And so in those few years, we. Same thing, we had a women class and a brass class, but then we split them up between ourselves to either be with their instruments or do theory or whatever. But we were always able to give that very specific attention, which I think is mean, really important. You can obviously do it other ways, but if you want clarinet players to know alternate fingerings, if you want embouchures to be set exactly the way you want them to be, if you want a kid to really know how to play a chromatic scale by the end of sixth grade, that's a lot harder to do when tubas and flutes and everybody's in the same room. Um, but it can be done obviously. Um, but it's a lot easier if they're all in instrument classes, I think.
0: And also having that extra help to the, the second person in the room is never a bad thing either.
1: And I've always, I won't say we, I've always been lucky to have an assistant, but we, I've always been lucky to work, uh, mostly with, with people who were willing to work out the schedule to where we could teach together some, or we can give up a planning period. I mean, people always, I'm sure looked at us at Central Davis and like, oh, well, you know, they have three van directors, how can it not go well? Well, part of that was because we gave up our planning periods. I mean, like I taught for years with zero planning so that I could be at the high school for certain periods with James and so that James could be at the middle school. And I remember James taught one fall with not an an ounce of planning period and doing of band after school, and, you know, we did that just so that the sixth graders could get started easier and they would, you know, be better long term. And, you know, that was worth the sacrifice um, in the end um, because we were able to give the kids more attention. But in some places, you know, there's no direct feeder to a high school. You're just on your own. I mean, in, that, in those places, I mean, you definitely, homogenous classes is the way you can, you can get, make up for that.
0: Sure. Absolutely uh talking about that kind of that kind of stuff along those lines your curriculum for a beginning band what did you teach how did you teach it from like start to finish of sixth grade like what's a basic sixth grade band curriculum look like for you ideally
1: i don't know if i was taught this or if i just sort of came up with it i was but basically for me the first month is sort of like suzuki method i mean it's very much just physically playing no music no stands no anything And I kind of like hesitated to tell people that for a long time because I figured that, Oh, you're just wrote teaching kids. And I went to a middle school thing that, um, Oh, uh, Cheryl Floyd did. Um, and it was like, just like a little informal chat at Midwest. And I think I asked her that question, well, how do you start the beginners? And I was really relieved to hear that's exactly how she did it as well. But basically, I mean, I would wrote, teach them and still do, you know how to play the first five notes set their embouchures correctly make sure they're tonguing be able to tongue and play five notes and then um, you know an easy song like hot cross buns that's a good one because it's whole notes and some quarter notes to tongue and it has a good place to breathe in the middle but if they could play five notes correctly tongue truly tongue them correctly have the embouchure set correctly make good sounds and do that then I felt like okay now we can all go in the book together and start reading songs Um, the last few years I taught at Central there was no music store in Lexington so pretty much they got everything through us it was delivered to me you know the instrument the book everything so I got to where I wouldn't give the books out until you had tongued correctly passed off tonguing and embouchure I have it on the chart like you know E for embouchure and T for tonguing and I think five notes was the next test, but they had to demonstrate they could do that correctly, uh, not huff and puff on flute, uh, legato tongue correctly. And then the, the reward was, okay, here's your book. Now you can start on line one. That was really effective because they all of a sudden getting to start in the book was a big deal, but they knew they had to do it correctly to start with. I've seen so many hor- horrendous concerts and these beginning band camps where <laughs> they're like plowing through 18 lines in the book and it's like it sounds like a lawnmower you know and I'm just like I don't understand you're just learning mistakes that are so hard to go back and correct and so I just for me I, I felt like that the physical part of playing is really difficult in the beginning if you're truly trying to get them to do it correctly and so I just wanted to remove every obstacle even chairs I, I was lucky at Central we didn't have a band room we taught in the old auditorium, and so. There was this big open space sort of in front of the stage, so in sixth grade we just got in a circle and we played in the circle every day. We never sat down, we never used stands, we never used anything. Then when they were good enough to get a stand and a chair, we would sit down on the stage and learn how to sit and learn how to do all the other stuff. Now I would teach theory during that time, but I did it separately. I mean, it was sort of like we're going to have half the class today be theory, but it wasn't related to the actually playing at all. So when they could read and when they could physically play, we then put it together and went back in the book. Gotcha. So it was slower in the beginning, but by Christmas, you know, we were way further ahead than I think than probably most people.
0: I feel like so many of us coming out just rush through stuff. We've never been taught how to start beginners.
1: Definitely. I, I was the same way. Um, I remember I had this, I've always been big on the pass-off chart. And I had my big pass-off chart up at Eastport Middle School and, you know, and the kids are flying through the lines and, Don Peach came in, you know, maybe the first, second month of school and he made some comment about, well, the chart's pretty and all, but if they can't really play the lines, what are you getting done? And I was like, what do you mean? And I then started to realize, okay, it's really the quality of what they're doing is much more important in the beginning. And so that's, I think probably when I got more into rote teaching physically how to play before I would let them go in the book.
0: Gotcha. And that's kind of how you assess your kids too, right? The the pass-off charts and uh, yeah, that kind of stuff? Yeah. Okay. Did that uh, seem to hook and motivate those beginners pretty good?
1: Yeah, I think so. i am um, always been surprised. and No one's ever, like, complained about it. But, I mean, it's kind of like the old reading progress things they used to put on the elementary school wall, you know, and, like, uh, accelerated reader. Like, I mean, I was always the kid that, if there was some chart on the wall, I was gonna make sure I was number one, you know, or kill somebody that was in my way to get it. And, you know, I felt like that for beginners, I mean, you don't want to announce that some kids are doing poorly necessarily, but I felt like it's a good way to reward the kids that are doing a lot and let them go at their own pace. And, you know, the one person made a comment about the charts in my room one time, like a, you know, curriculum person, And I thought it was going to be negative and they were like all about it. And they're like, oh, this is the best thing ever. And it's accountability and all they can see where they're at. And, you know, and for the kids that didn't pass the line off, it's not like I put, you know, zero on the chart or 70. A pass off was basically 95 or above. And so they might be at like a 90. And I said, well, you know, come come back next time and try it again. And then the pass off was basically a complete. So I didn't feel like it was advertising grades or anything, but it was definitely showing off who was moving along and and it kind of the ones that maybe were a little lazier got a little more motivated because they saw the rest of the class kind of zipping through and i think it's a big motivator i mean i i've just always felt like that was a big deal and i have definitely watched sixth graders who would pretty much sell their other sibling to get to (laughs) pass off the line so you know i i think it's a motivator for sure absolutely it's like the ribbons you know and in uh, recorder and stuff. I mean, anything to get them motivated and wanting to do something, you know, found me. Well,
0: I consider you the master motivator. Uh, do you, what else did you do to motivate kids to get them like, especially from sixth grade to seventh to eighth to high school, kind of in that terms of motivation, what all did you do that was effective for you?
1: You know, every grade is different. They're so different sixth, seventh and eighth grade. I mean, it's like three, different children, you know, it's the baby, the ugly middle child and the like star, you know, and you just have to like, and they're just, they change so much at that age level. It's like the three years that probably they're the most different in education. You know, in sixth grade, they're still like elementary kids. So you kind of have to think more like that. And in seventh grade, it's whatever motivates them, who knows they're just weird creatures at that age every year is different. I mean, you just don't know what's going to work for that crowd. And then in eighth grade, you know, they're usually more serious and they're kind of figuring out what real music is about and contest usually will, will motivate them in all districts and stuff like that. But it also just depends on the year. Um, for me, I mean, in sixth grade, pretty much the method book and passing off lines was good for probably through March. And then the spring concert, you know, I mean, that, that's a huge deal for them. And I always tried to do, I mean, right or wrong, I did basically the same six, seven pieces every year with, with sixth grade, um, you know, that all kind of had something I wanted to teach in it. And, you know, I tried to pick music they were going to really like. Anything, of course, the Dragon Slayer, Mountain Dragon tunes, you know, whatever they're called. <laughs> like, you know, that <laughs> right. sort of gets them all motivated, you know, and um Sometimes solo ensemble, you know, for sixth grade, if they were advanced, they really would be into that if it was something really easy. Seventh grade, you know, it's just, like I said, it's a weird age. If you don't take the seventh graders to MPA, which I never did, I just didn't really believe in that. I, if you don't do that, they're usually not quite advanced enough that most of them can do, like, all districts or something. So it's like they're just at this awkward age where they're they're too good to be real beginners and just – you know, and pass off tons of lines, but they're also not quite good enough to do the other stuff. So a lot of years for mine, solo ensemble seemed to be a good bridge. You know, we would work on group solos in class. I love those um, festival solos by Bruce, Bruce Pearson. Those have great piano accompaniments and the kids could play those at home and, you know, or at church. And we would, I would try to take most of the seventh graders solo ensemble at the end of the year. So that was sort of our thing with them that worked. But some years it didn't work. I mean, you know, some years they just couldn't care less about that. So you just had to kind of figure out what it, what it was going to motivate that crowd. Eighth grade. I never had a group ever that wasn't motivated by MPA. You know, they just knew that was, that was tradition that, you know, good or bad, you know, the shiny plaque on the wall, they knew, okay, everybody else got one of those things. We want one too. And, you know, they knew they're going somewhere. They're going to play for people. was. For them, that always just seemed like something that got them pretty motivated in the spring. I mean, I would see kids that usually were pretty blase about band and life in general, all of a sudden, you know, practice that third trombone part. And for our kids, that was a that was a pretty big deal. And it is at Asheville as well. The kids are, are into that. They know it's important and, you know, it's something that kind of gets them going for that semester. Um, all districts and all county as well in eighth grade that seemed to motivate our kids a lot to want to learn a solo to want to learn um, scales and things. So, you know, but it's different. I mean, some people do all kinds of things, care wind strips, whatever. I mean, whatever works great.
0: So pretty much you ne- probably didn't really do the same thing all the time, each grade level every year. Cause the kids are different, I'm sure too. Right. It's yeah. kind of depend on the grade level and the kids and what yeah. they had to offer.
1: I mean, I sort of had the same, the same general, plan template there sure sometimes it just didn't work and so when it didn't work i mean i would kind of go back like well okay what's what's going on here why are we still working on one octave scales and they still can't play them and they're not you know what i mean for some kids grades are a motivator i've never been that big on grades actually i, I would pretty much just rather give every kid in the band an a and move on but you know for some kids that's a big deal and for some kids they don't care anything at all about grades um you know, pass offs. I mean, it's a big thing for them. And for some, you know, it's a party, you know, a donut party or whatever. I didn't ever do a whole lot of that, but sometimes the lowest motivated class, it'd be like, all right, what do I have to do to get you people to want to move here? Like, you know, and I just has always tried to figure out, I mean, student motivation is the number one thing. Like you, you can't force them to do anything they don't want to do. So figuring out how to get them to want to do it is the trick in middle school.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And you're really good at that too. It's, uh, it's amazing what you've done at your, with your schools and your bands. It's just incredible uh, what you've done. It's really cool to see that. Uh, what do you feel uh, was your biggest struggle in teaching middle school band?
1: Um, I don't know that I had a lot of struggles. I I probably have had more like personal or like teaching struggles in high school, like, which is why I wanted to move to high school. I just felt like it was a, it was more of a, going to be a different challenge for me, but I, I think probably my biggest struggle was that I wanted, getting them to want what I wanted, you know, I mean, middle school kids, especially in sixth grade, are, are kind of babies, you know, like, our goals are not always the same, you know, and so I always had to work hard to try to make sure their class was fun, that I wasn't been too hard. I'm pretty serious about things. And I, you know, first day of sixth grade, I'm like, all right, two octave for meta scale, seven scales, let's go. And like, you know, that's really what I would like to be doing, but I had to figure out, okay, they're 11. Um, they want to play, you know, Mary had a little lamb and they want, I had to sort of retool to that and figure out okay well what do I do to get them to want to be what I want them to be and that that's hard. I mean I think most of my time in middle school was spent figuring out how they ticked and how to motivate them and if you can do that then the rest of it falls in place. I mean middle school kids will teach themselves, will practice anything you give them much more than high school kids will if you can figure out how to get them motivated, how to get them going and so I I think that was where my biggest struggle was, if that makes sense. I mean, I, I knew what I wanted. I just didn't always know how to get them to want to do that or how to how to do it and be that successful. Sure. Most years I did, but some years, you know, I, it, I had a really weird group one time um, that it turned out to be really, really good. But when they were like in sixth or seventh grade, it was like the Eeyore band. I mean, nothing motivated them. They just were <laughs> this crowd of losers that, you know, just rolled their eyes and didn't want to you know participate and didn't I mean it was just like negative Nancy's all over the place in that band and I thought you know everything I'm doing is the same I mean I've, I've done like, I don't understand why it's not working the group ahead of them and behind them were like so so good and they were just these creatures you know that wouldn't do anything and <laughs> finally I remember like I had for years trash talked that great locomotive tune like you know oh, it should be taken off the list and that, that's a piece of garbage it's not real music and that tune i like totally changed that band i mean it just did huh. we played it for contest that year and they played it really well you know they that for some reason got them hooked and like that just was not a group that was going to play like you know serious art music or something i mean they were you know that was the sort of thing that got them going and and so i always had to just program music that fit their interest and all of a sudden you know that they really changed and, but I had to change myself to make that happen. And I guess that was, again, probably my biggest struggle was just trying to figure out how to motivate the middle school child and be a middle schooler because I was pretty much born an adult. So sure, you know, harder for me.
0: Oh yeah. Along those same lines too, uh, you're really good at building relationships with kids and people. How do you do that? How do you go about building those relationships with kids and people that, uh, that you've encountered over the years? What works the best?
1: You know, I I think being somewhere a long time helps. At East Burke, it was so easy day one. And I just thought that I must be good at it. But it was easy because I was from there. Like half the kids, older siblings had gone to high school with me or knew my brothers who were not much older than them. And, you know, my middle school principal there is who hired me Robert Patton, uh, who was wonderful. My mentor teacher was like, was my eighth grade teacher. Everybody in the school knew me. So like I automatically had credibility when I walked in the door the first day and the kids sort of knew that and trusted me. And it was just sort of easy. When I got to Central Davidson, it was the exact opposite. I mean, they could not have hated somebody more (laughs) than me the first, (laughs) first six months. And I, I just couldn't, you know, I couldn't figure out like, I'm doing the same thing, I mean, I feel like I'm a nice person, like I you know, and it was like no matter what I did, I mean they were just not going to to be responding to it and by the second year, it was easier, and then it was a little easier, and fourth and fifth and sixth, and all of a sudden, I had kids, younger siblings that coming into the door, knew me, knew my name, would you know were sort of trusting, and then I felt like I could be a lot closer to them, and you know, so I always. Tried to just be friendly to the kids and talk to them going in and out the door, greet them when they came in, say goodbye when they left, made sure if, if we had a rough class day and I was particularly moody or something that, you know, I would say something before they left or, you know, pat them on the back so they went out the door. But I think just being there in the community and being seen and knowing their parents and knowing them and knowing their siblings, I think I just probably had a lot of credibility established that I didn't even have to work at you know, um, which I didn't realize until much, you know, probably uh, 10 years in, I realized, oh, this is way easier. Colonel Warner describes it as a cash register. Huh. You know, you're constantly cashing in on things and, and building up your your credibility, basically. And every once in a while, you know, you have to take something out of the cash register if you have a bad day or you yell at some kid or you, you know, you make a mistake. And But parents generally will and kids will give you the benefit of the doubt and we'll will maintain a good relationship with you because you've built that up over time. That's where first year teachers are always, you know, they're just sunk where they start most of the time because people sure. assume they're going to be unsuccessful and, you know, assume that they're up to no good. And um, so I guess to answer the question, I, I mean, I think just being there a long time and trying to be friendly with people, you know, and, and have relationships with people's parents and students. I mean, that makes a big difference. Car rider duty was a big one for me. I, I think that I didn't, I, I cursed when I had the duty the first time. And I was like, I can't believe really I have to stand out here. But it allowed me to meet the parents and to know faces and just say hello every morning. And that was, a, that was actually a pretty big change, I think, for me at Central Davidson. All of a sudden, the parents saw me every single day. And, and I got to greet the kids in the mornings and, you know, that sort of stuff. Just being in a school and getting to know the kids and being a part of things, that's really much more important than people realize.
0: Gotcha. Gotcha. That's some incredible stuff there. I've never heard that Colonel Warner, uh, little thing there about the cash register. That's really good. I liked um, that a lot.
1: And i thought about that at Asheville this year. I mean, not, when someone would start to question something, i would be like, all right, you know, of course they're going to question it. They don't, they're nervous. They've been through five band directors here in like, you know, four years. I mean, they, I, I sort of knew to expect it. And I, I knew how to, I knew that I was going to have to build up some credibility before they would trust. And, and fortunately that's happened really quickly, but it, I didn't automatically assume that they were like out to get me or that it was negative. I just knew that they were gonna be distrustful a little bit in the beginning and have to have things explained carefully. And, you know, and I would have to work hard to establish a good relationship with them, which at this point we've done. Um, but, you know, it's hard. The longer at a school though, the easier it is.
0: Gotcha. Well, you've had a, a ton of information here that's really, really helpful. Is there anything else that you would offer uh, a beginning teacher? If you were coming out again, uh, any advice that you can maybe – that you know now, that you wish you would have known then, that you could offer somebody coming out to the profession uh, in the next couple months or years? Um, I, I think
1: one thing, um, Mr. Clark – and Dr. Gora both told me when I was student teaching and looking for jobs and sort of trying to decide, well, do I want to do high school or middle school, or, you know, do I want to go back to school and totally skip teaching? I mean, you know, I didn't really know what I was going to do. I remember that semester, but both those people said you should really teach middle school in a middle school. You, what, you know, shows up very quickly and what you don't know shows up very quickly. And if you really want to learn to teach, that's the place to, to go do it. And, um, you know, being 22, I felt like I was probably too young to teach high school children. And so that was really good advice. And I, I did figure out real quick that if the kids can't tongue, that's because I didn't teach it right, you know? And and I, I think if I had any advice to them, it is do blame yourself when things go wrong, but don't do it in a negative way. Just know that, okay, I, I have... I'm not teaching the things I need to teach when something goes poorly in the middle school or, or really anything. When you're teaching, Mr. Clark also told me to remember that anytime you get angry at your class or at kids or anybody look to yourself first, cause you're probably the one who created the problem. Oh wow! I've never forgotten that. And every time I'm like ready to explode, I'm like, okay, I'm probably the reason this is happening. What, what have I done wrong here? And for first your teachers, that's hard because, they take things so personally a lot of times and can't accept criticism from others or even from themselves. But I've always been able to separate those two things and know that just because I taught something poorly or I screwed something up doesn't mean I'm a terrible teacher. or I'm a terrible person. It just means I messed up that one time. Sure. And I've always been really reflective about things like that. But I think the biggest problem I've seen with a lot of student teachers and with young teachers is it's always the kid's fault. It's always the parents' fault. Well, the schools just—it's a bad school. The kids are just dumb. Like you know, oh well, we have no resources. It's always somebody's fault besides their fault. And at the end of the day, it's not always fun to admit, but it really is your fault. Like, it's your class. You're in charge of it. You—you're the person who delivers the instruction. If they can't do it, it—it's back on you, and you have to go back to the drawing board and just figure that out. And you know, it doesn't. It's hard to do that and not be depressed your first year or two, you know. Oh yeah, everything's gone wrong the first few years, you know. And it's like we already have a hard enough time with first year teachers, you know, quitting or not wanting to stick with it. But I just feel like that as hard as it is to admit that generally you are the problem, and if you'll work harder at learning the materials, I mean, you know, learn Colonel Warner calls it learning your craft. I mean, if you'll work harder at learning how to teach the instruments how to conduct, how to rehearse music, how to listen, how to get along with parents. If you work really hard at that the first year, two, three, four, it will very quickly turn around and it'll pay big dividends. Um, but I, I think that's probably the thing I would just like to say to student teachers sometimes day one that I, I don't, because it sounds kind of harsh, but you know,
0: it's true. They, they got to uh, hear it. That's good for them to hear though.
1: And I think other than that, I mean, other than learning, other than learning the content, you have to learn how to be a politician and a, a guidance counselor, and a, you know everything else is involved with this job. And I feel like sometimes young teachers, again, it's well, the parents are just crazy. It's not my fault, and I have this terrible principal, and and believe me, I've had my share of terrible principles, But you know, you have to figure out how to make it work. I mean, you know, you you have a lunatic as your principal. Well, they're still your boss, and you know, people always call me and say, oh, I got this terrible principal. I think I want to leave. I'm like, well, that principal's probably going to be gone in two or three years. And, you know, you, just because you go to another job doesn't mean you're not going to get another crazy principal eventually. I mean, uh-huh. you have to learn how to make that work. And it, it sucks, but it just is what it is. And so I feel like for young teachers, learning the content area and learning how to survive the politics of being a teacher are huge. You know, those are the two things that probably take most teachers down if something does
0: sure. Wow. Tons of, of knowledge here, man. Like a, it's awesome. Appreciate all your time today. Appreciate you joining me on the podcast. Um, it's going to be incredible to share this with everybody and hope they get a lot out of it. Cause there's a lot of great information here. So well, I appreciate, I appreciate it. Yep. Thanks. All right. Well, y'all take care. See you, Mr. Rodney. Bye Bye.